We're so excited uh, now to be making the transition from Hebrew Bible into the New Testament. And to be delving into the New Testament, we actually start not with the Gospels, but with the Epistles, as uh, the reasons behind that will uh, become apparent in the next few weeks. Um, but we are very excited uh, to welcome back uh, Dr. Carl Pace, Carl, for us. Uh, and let's just jump right in, but before we do, let's uh, pray that the Spirit would be with us. Let's go to God in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you for the gift of this day. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us this day, and all that we do and say and learn and all that is taught today by Carl may point to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. All right, thank you, Michael. Um, so I, I appear to be coming through loud and clear. <laughs> I'm wondering, by the way, where my, my student has gone, if she's coming today or if she's going to be late like she was last time. I'll have to pick on her if she's late. Last, last time, you know, about the, the last 15 minutes of class, a, a student of mine from Ohio State found me somehow and ended up showing up at the lecture. And then she started, you know, j- sort of looking through the magazine. I thought, oh, I, at first I thought, oh, she must be here to see me. And then I thought, oh, I'm, I'm kidding myself. She's here to read a magazine. <laughs> I'm not sure that one was true over the other. I mean, she did say she was here to see me, but she would. <laughs> All right, so today we are embarking on, a, a, on quite a bit of a different journey than the one we were on before. Uh, and thank you so much, all of you, for tolerating me to come back and, uh, and, and being willing to show up again. Uh, today we are starting off the larger lecture series that you guys are going to do in the New Testament. And I know that, uh, I believe, Michael, you're doing the Gospels. I don't know who's doing other material outside of that, but there's plenty to talk about. So, uh, as Michael said, you know, we have some explaining to do, sort of, Lucy, you have some explaining to do, right? Why are we starting with the letters of the New Testament? What is that all about? So, uh, without further ado, we'll actually start talking about that, okay? If I can, yes, there we go. So, one of the things that we we do when we study New Testament, and, and I you know, it's not my wheelhouse normatively to talk New Testament stuff, but being a Bible guy and reading Old Testament means you, you just, as a Christian anyway, you definitely have to wrangle with the New Testament. And so I, I, you know, I, I teach and I preach locally you know, on the whole Bible, and so I have that uh, aspect of New Testament. But I've also given a couple, uh, a couple seminars and lecture, uh, not lectures, sorry, classes on the New Testament including more recently in the fall, uh, a full class on, the, uh, on, the, um, on Paul and his epistles. So, and that's, I think, ultimately why Michael decided, hey, here, you know, here's somebody I can, I can convince to do this because he just covered it. So uh, hopefully with that background in, in mind, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be able to flesh out some things that are new to me as well because I always love to learn something. Uh, the first place I'd like to start is just asking that question, why read the letters first. And so I want to ask you a question. What is the earliest written material in the New Testament? Now, having asked that while also saying, why are we reading the letters, sort of begs the question, right? Um, But what do you think the answer most people are going to give is? You catch somebody on the street, you're bold enough to say, hey, what do you think about the the oldest written text in the New Testament? If they don't look at you in befuddlement. Matthew. Mark. Oh, Mark. So we have two different, two different Gospels here. Matthew. Why Matthew? Boom, it's the first one there. That's right. Why Mark? Oh, yeah, that's right. So, so wh- wh- one person makes a canonical argument 
I assume Matthew is older because it's the first in the Bible. The other one makes a historical argument, which is, I've heard, and, and I think this is correct, actually, by the way, I've heard that Mark was the older gospel, so it's probably Mark. You know, and then people might go, well, Luke, maybe John, right? Always, they're presupposing that a gospel would be the oldest material written, okay? And why? Why would, and that, that is pretty much universally what people will say. Whether for historical reasons or canonical reasons, people will often assert the Gospels were written first. Why? Eyewitnesses, okay? They were eyewitnesses of Jesus, okay? What else? A literate culture. Oh, as opposed to oral culture. Writing always would come first, right? Right, that's true. That, that's right. Oh, okay, so, the, so now let's take it a step further because we're not just talking about which came first, oral versus written. We're talking about in the written material, what's older. And you said, it's the bigger story. It's the, it's the, it's the front page news. Literally, in the canon, right? <laughs> so this would, of course, be older. Right. Anybody else have any thoughts as to why, why people would assume the Gospels are the original or the oldest manuscripts or the materials that we have? It's the big story. It's first in the canon. I've heard that Mark is older than Matthew and Luke, so... Presumably, it's the oldest. Okay, so the way it writes, you know, all these, it's, it's emphasis on direct quotations of Jesus. Give it some clout, right? A lot of this really comes down to the difference between an internal chronology and an external chronology. And what I mean by that is, it's entirely possible to tell a story that is placed in an earlier time but to tell it at a later time than somebody else is telling him something, okay? So the internal chronology of the New Testament obviously starts with Jesus. Actually, it starts with John the Baptist. So it goes from John the Baptist, Jesus, and onward, and then you start getting to the apostles. And the, inter- the internal chronology, the canon, suggests that before you get to Paul's writings or James's writings or goodness knows, you know, it's important to get there before we get to the apocalypse of John, if we want to have any hope of surviving that book, then we, we say, okay, then we need to know about this Jesus guy up front. Okay? That is the internal chronology of the New Testament, and it makes sense. We, in fact, often will introduce people to Christian texts by starting them in the Gospels, getting their feet wet, helping them understand who Jesus is, and that's understandable. In reality, the oldest written materials in the New Testament were the letters. They were the letters. Okay? Not Matthew, but Paul's letters in particular. And this is a roughed out chronology. The C here stands for circa. It is very, very difficult to date anything with precision. But based on Paul's missionary journeys, coupled with certain cultural contexts and historical clues that we have, we think that this is more or less a reasonable uh, external chronology of when the letters of Paul would have been written, all of them written before any gospel was ever written, as far as we know. Okay? All the gospels that we have, uh, I mean, by this time, maybe some gospel writing might be happening toward the end of Paul's letters, but certainly not this early. Uh, to wit, and I'll leave the unpacking of this, hopefully, uh, you know, Michael won't mind me stepping on his toes a little bit here. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the unpacking of this to Michael, but. Our way of reading the New Testament suggests that everyone ought to start by reading the story of Jesus and continue on 
And what I find fascinating is that if you pay attention, careful attention to these Gospels, what seems to be the case is they were written for people who already believed. These Gospels were not written to make believers. They were written to edify believers. As a matter of fact, there's a famous textual difference in the Gospel of John. At the end of the book we have in chapter 20, an indication, matter of fact, open up your Bibles to, uh, this is better than you, you should look at the text yourself instead of just trusting me with this. Uh, John chapter 20. <clears throat> and there are some Bibles being dispersed, so if you need to grab one, that's great. Okay, so John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Um, and we're thankful for verses like this because it's all too rare in ancient literature that we get the author's willingness to tell us about the, the, the inspiration for writing, his reasons for writing, what he's attempting to accomplish. Usually that remains hidden underneath the surface. But here, the author actually divulges exactly what, uh, what he intends to do. Um, so can I have someone, uh, uh, Michael, can you read for us? Yeah, since you have the mic. Verse 30? Yeah, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Right, so here we have some very important details. Number one, that the Gospel of John has intentionally selected some material and not other material in order to write his gospel, which is, that's interesting in and of itself, right? And by the way, when he says, he did many other signs not included, that's an understatement. Does anybody know how many miracles Jesus does in the Gospel of John? Seven. That's it. And you know what? None of those seven is ever exercising a demon. It doesn't exist in the Gospel of John. If you had only the Gospel of John, exorcism wouldn't be a thing. But... That's probably because the gospel writer of John says, yeah, Mark and Matthew and Luke, they covered that already. <laughs> I don't need to go into it. He's not interested in that. He selects only seven miraculous uh, deeds that Jesus did. And he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. Um, anyway, I'll leave Michael to unpack exactly why that is. Uh, now you have to. Now you do. All right. But then, then the second statement, yeah, sure. Yeah. Ah, that's a, we, we, do, we do think, and I don't, I'm not going to put this on Michael to unpack, but we do think that the gospel writer of the Gospel of John was aware of at least one of the other three gospels. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and hence this point where he says, he's very comfortable saying, look, Jesus did a lot of things I'm not going to talk about. Boy, that's a, how can you say that, right? I mean, everything that this man would have done would have been important. I think that that itself indicates that the author felt like other sources were out there. Um, he actually even alludes to how many other things Jesus did. Later, again, in, in another passage in the Gospel of John, he says, if I bothered to record everything that Jesus said and did, the whole world couldn't contain the books. So he knows that there's material. There's lots of material out there. Um, of course, it's also entirely possible that he hasn't read one of the Gospels, but that he's heard. He's heard the oral teachings about what Jesus did. Okay? And that, that's always the tension in early Christian texts is um, when there's an illusion, is it written, they've read it, or is it oral? And that's very difficult. All right, second thing, verse 31. 
uh, Michael's Bible said, these things have been written. Here we have the purpose. So that, and your Bible said again, Michael, what again? In verse 31. These things have been written so that that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you have life in his name. Um, So as it happens, there are two versions of this text, and certain texts go one way and certain texts go another. Uh, Some will say, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Others are written to say, these things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. One has one kind of audience in mind, and the other has another. (laughs) Right? Um, C.S. Lewis actually commented once, uh, I can't remember if it was in Reflections on the Psalms, somewhere in one of his writings, that uh, he himself was also persuaded that the Gospels were written not to make converts, but to take Christians and enhance their faith. Um, Anyway, the the point being that uh, the Gospels do have a slot, and they do have a a, a space that they occupy, um, but they are, in many respects... Uh, in many respects, for the original audience, I think secondary sources. Secondary sources. Which to us blows our minds because how can you talk about the Gospels as the secondary sources? Well, part of the reality is their primary source wasn't even written. And almost, we're, we're almost 100% certain on this that the primary sources for most people's coming to faith was the oral preaching of the Gospel and not a written text. I mean, aside from the Old Testament, right? That, that, that's something to consider. All right, so this is what I teach my students uh, in general about the roughed out uh, shape of how the New Testament came to be. Um, Jesus is understood to be the forebearer of all of the preaching of his message, the gospel message, which scholars like to always invent fancy words for. So we call it the kerygma. It's actually not an invented word. It's just Greek. It means the proclamation. Um, The proclamation of the gospel or the kerygma, which is then orally passed down and distributed to the disciples. Notice Jesus himself is never said to have written anything. The greats rarely do. How do we know so much about Socrates? Because of what he wrote? No, Socrates never wrote a single word that we know of. Plato, his disciple, wrote his words, right? So uh, there are lots of people who uh, are famous figures in antiquity who themselves never actually wrote anything down, but their followers and their their disciples did. So I'm trying to tell my church that they need to help me write my book um, because this is the way I'm... I'm, But they just somehow don't buy that I'm of the level of Jesus and Socrates yet. So I'm working on that. No, no, I'm not actually working on that. And God, please don't strike me dead for saying that. So anyway, oral message is the foundation um, and the churches are all formed on the basis of an oral proclamation with the coupling of, of, of the Hebrew Bible, Jewish scripture. That is clearly a canonical text at that point. But there aren't New Testament texts at this point. My students get all sorts of confused about this. They'll say, well, you know, why wouldn't they just consult the Bible? And I was like, what's the Bible? And they're like, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm like, yeah, but those weren't written yet. The people who wrote them <laughs> haven't been born yet, or they haven't been working yet, or there's, there's, there's problems with that, Okay. We have in this sense that the first documents to appear, again, measured from a number of different angles, are the letters, and they primarily appear because these churches that were founded on the oral proclamation of the gospel started struggling and having problems. And then the leaders who were there to pastorally administer over these problems couldn't be present all the time because, you know, like Paul, he's traveling all over the Mediterranean world, 
he leaves the city and then he hears, you know, a month later that that city's in chaos and turmoil and that people don't know what to think and believe or they have a question that they don't know how to answer anymore. So they appeal to him in a letter or a messenger comes to him and says, hey, they're, they're in trouble. And so he says, well, I can't turn back and go. I have got to go on this way. So he pens a letter and he sends it back to them. And lo and behold, the very first writings in the New Testament, <laughs> written primarily to address very specific situations and problems, in those local churches, on occasion, maybe something more. So first we have letters being written, and those letters themselves will be kind of taken up and read publicly. Uh, It's very clear that Paul wants most of his letters to be read as a public address, kind of like a, a sermon in letter form. And then these letters will probably be shared with churches around the local vicinity, and then eventually they'll be shared with churches more broadly, and they'll be copying each other's letters and reading each other's letters Um, And that will, of course, begin a very important process in how letters like the letters of Paul become canon because if the original letter was written, for example, to the church of Corinth to address the Corinthian situation and their problem, the moment that people from Ephesus start copying it and read it, it it sort of bleaches it of its context. Now it's more generalized because the Ephesians aren't the same as the church and they don't have the same struggles as the church of Corinth. So, so Paul's message and the message of other letters, letter writers will become very much more generalized. And sometimes this actually creates problems. <clears throat> okay? Then after that, at some point, we have the authoring of uh, the Gospels. And I feel like my laser pointer just died. And it did. <laughs> this is awesome. So we have the, the communication of the message orally supplemented by Gospels the book of Acts, which is actually just volume two in the Gospel of Luke. Okay? These two go together. Um, And then uh, also some of the more interesting and robust texts like Hebrews, which really isn't a letter, um, and then the Apocalypse of John. If you just want to give me a second here. So the the message I'm, I'm essentially conveying here is that the Gospel is oral first and written only later, and that in actuality, and this is actually really fundamentally important for the history of Christian thought, the oral preaching never completely disappeared. The oral preaching was always there. When a text was produced, when different texts were produced that had a relationship to and grew out of this tradition, you ended up with two pillars of the church, which actually formed a really fundamentally strong basis. And throughout the history of the church, thank you, throughout the history of the church, anytime the, now I can blind people, <laughs> watch out, um, anytime the text has been corrupted, or somebody has suggested adding a book or subtracting a book, the church goes back into its heart, into its, in its innermost place, and says, what is the message that we've always believed and preached? And whenever a text comes along that doesn't agree with that, we go, we know the truth. We know this is not the truth. Okay? And vice versa, whenever the church's preaching has tended to stray, tended to become corrupted or, or, or changed or malformed, um, then the text bears witness to what the church has believed and taught. So these two are in a very very important conversation with each other throughout history. The text constantly holds the church accountable for what it preaches, and the, the understood gospel that the church has preached throughout the centuries holds the text into its conformed line. So when you take one of these out, and you know, the generally, you know, what, one of the things I like to think about is like, You've got, you know, but Protestantism has acknowledged that the church needed to become needed to be called back to Scripture, right? Um, 
And yet the Protestants also kind of struggle sometimes. We as Protestants will struggle because, you know, our, in our rhetoric, we're just scripture-based. We don't have that oral preaching tradition. And so then there are all sorts of questions that we can't answer about why we should believe the Bible and what's going on. Because we've lost sight of the fact that we know the gospel. We've heard the gospel. You know, most of us didn't become Christians by sitting in a cave somewhere and reading scripture. We came into the faith via community. Now, this is the canon of the New Testament in order. In the column in the middle is just the books in order. On the left-hand side, I've indicated special collections. So, for example, Luke and Acts belong together as volume 1 and volume 2 by one author. This is, if you read the introductory chapters to both books, you'll see it. Um, and then John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are letters in the Apocalypse of John, we called the Johannine Corpus because they're all written by John. <laughs> also because they share a lot of uh, similar theology and features um, that you know, somebody else will have to address. All right. Uh, then we have, of course, the Gospels. We, we have lots of ways of subdividing all these texts. You know, do we want to look at it this way? Do we want to look at it that way? Our interest will be in this middle section here, the letters. The letters of Paul up to Philemon, the ambiguous book of Hebrews or letter of Hebrews, which is neither a book nor a letter, Discuss, <laughs> right? It's like the, uh, we don't know. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> tradition, Christian tradition for a long time said Paul, and if you open up a King James Bible, it'll say the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews, but there's no evidence in the text for that. Um, Jerome, Jerome a, a, Christian, a Christian scholar and, and church father living in the 4th, 5th century, said, he suggested that the reason Paul didn't sign his name to Hebrews was because he wasn't well-liked by the Jews, and so he left his name off. But that if you really think about it, if Paul, because all the letters we have of Paul today are written in Greek. If Paul had written in his mother tongue, in Hebrew or Aramaic, and if that were then subsequently translated to Greek, it would sound different. And this is Jerome's math about why Hebrews doesn't sound like standard Paul and why Paul never signed his name to it. But is that perhaps special pleading? Okay. Anyway, um, after this, we've got so the Pauline epistles here, which includes a couple subdivisions like the pastoral letters, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and then possibly you could add Philemon in. If you, depends on how you define pastoral. Um, and then other, other collections as well. And then the latter portion, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, we refer to as the general epistles or Catholic epistles. Um, we call them Catholic epistles because... Catholique in Greek means universal. So in all said, all said and done, um, many of the books in the New Testament were written by Paul as letters, right? And other early church authorities also added their voices, or at least that's the record, right? There, there are all sorts of questions we have about this. We have letters from Peter, James, John, and Jude, with you know Peter, of course, being recognized as the chief apostle, uh, sort of. Uh, J James being actually the brother of Jesus, a family member of Jesus, and the head of the church of Jerusalem. Jude also being identified as a brother of Jesus. And then uh, John just being poor, lonesome John, leading a church up in Ephesus. Now, uh, then Hebrews, again, anonymous. We don't know who exactly is uh, responsible for this. And in fact, there's a lot of scholarly debate about whether or not the actual historical character Peter wrote both First and Second Peter and whether James and Jude and John actually wrote their respective letters. We, we lack so much knowledge on this, it's, it's hard to make a conclusive argument one way or the other. Okay? 
Um, but those are the names we go with, and, and that's it. Now, each one of these letters that's assigned to a distinctive person has a, a distinctive theological outlook, distinctive language and style. And, and because of that, it, it becomes difficult to compare them and to use them together. Sometimes letters don't actually serve as letters. For example, uh, I'm convinced that Hebrews, even though it's cast in the form of a letter, reads more like a sermon. And in fact, given how much the letter of Hebrews dwells specifically on the wilderness tradition of Israel, after the exodus, before coming into the promised land, considering that, considering how much it talks about being a pilgrim on earth, about you know, looking forward to the things that haven't been seen, that we're yet to come into, a promised land of our own, I wouldn't at all be, be surprised if Hebrews was a letter sermon that was written to be read publicly on the festival of Sukkot, which is the exact time of year when Jewish Christians would have been reflecting on the wilderness wandering tradition. could be also written as, a, as a, an expository Bible commentary on portions of the book of Numbers. We don't really know, but these are the kinds of things that I think about when I try to understand how these letters would have worked. Okay? Uh, James is, uh, it's, again, it's written as a letter, but it's really more of a wisdom instruction. And in fact, if you want to do yourself a favor sometime and just kind of open your mind, uh, read the letter of James in concert with Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see that it's virtually the same thought. Uh, James seems to be regurgitating or recycling, putting new words to it, but the traditional teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, with, I mean, even the same order, the same things that are dealt with, using the same language. So, uh, it, you know, why is it that way? What is he trying to do? What is he trying to accomplish? By the way, and we'll hopefully get a chance to address this, <clears throat> It's probably, it's, it could very well be very significant that one of our biggest challenges with James as modern Christians and Protestants in particular is the, the thing that James says about faith and works. You know, James seems to almost go exa- exactly against Paul. You know, he even uses the same examples. He, he uses Abraham as an example for why, you know, Paul says, Abraham is an example for why faith is what saves you, not works. And James says, Abraham is an example how faith is nothing without works. (laughs) What does it mean that James is addressed specifically to the 12 tribes of Israel in the diaspora? How seriously do we take that? That is to say, is this a letter that non-Jewish Christians should think applies to them or not? So, uh, all sorts of things going on here. And and in indicating what I just said, uh, one of the principles that I always teach my students is that the content of a letter is dictated by um, a number of features relevant to the community to which it is written. Okay? What kinds of problems was that church experiencing? What kinds of questions did they have? What was the group made up out of? Are they Jewish Christians? Are they non-Jewish Christians? Are they Greeks? Are they Romans? What kind of background did they have? One of the things that I think is really fascinating about the letters is how frequently like, the local environment and its sort of culture colors the content of a letter. For example, I don't think it's accidental that when, when a letter was written to Ephesus, again, we, we think, we, some, some think by Paul, some think by a disciple of Paul, the letter of Ephesians, it's probably not an accident that this letter written to what was considered in the time the hub of ancient Mediterranean magic should spend so much time dwelling on 
things like the power of God, the principalities and powers that work in the supernatural world, the great mystery of Christ in which Christians have been inducted. Probably something of a connection there. Okay? Uh, so one of the things that means, of course, is that if we want to understand these letters, we need to understand their background. What's, what's going on behind the letter? Okay? And doubly important is since we do think, okay, we do think, and this is nearly unanimous, we do think that the, the letters were written first, that means that they should be preeminent in any, time, any discussion about what the earliest Christians believed. Case in point, I find this endlessly fascinating. When uh, early, you know, 19th and 20th century scholars, earlier scholars, attempted to begin exploring Jesus as a historical figure, the so-called the quest for the historical Jesus, okay, they were trying to figure out, you know, who was Jesus really? And the, of course, the implicit assumption is that is that he's certainly not what the Gospels say he is, right? Well, who says? So when they did their search, and they came up, many of the, uh, you know, almost all of the historical Jesus scholars came out with the same essential conclusion, which is, well, of course we know Jesus was just a human being, and he was later divinized by later Christians, right? What was their basis for thinking that? They turned back to the Gospels and they said, these earliest stories of Jesus, red flag, these earliest stories of Jesus show him in humanity, in his human form, and the later material, a.k.a. the writings of Paul, right, showed that he was later divinized. But wait a second. What does it mean that Paul's writings came first and the Gospels came later? That's a problem. As a matter of fact, Given some of the things that Paul says and some of the problems that emerged very early in the Christian scene, my, my, my guess, my theory, is that in actuality, the cosmic Christ, Jesus as connected intimately with God as a messianic figure, was the earlier belief promulgated through most of the Mediterranean until it created a problem in the Christologies of these churches, their, their idea of who Jesus was. Many of these churches began to think that Jesus was an angel, or only a heavenly being, right? And I think the Gospels were actually written to bring people back to earth. <laughs> Say, no, 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 you're getting carried away. Jesus wasn't just a spiritual being. He really lived in the flesh. The Gospels, in that way, actually are trying to humanize Jesus more and more. And what most of the scholars of the Historical Jesus Project had suggested was is that that's where it started. In actuality, I think that's where it ended. Again, but what do I know? I'm just an Old Testament guy. All right, so one of the things that I think deserves to be said about New Testament letters is that we do only have a selection of what existed. That is absolutely clear. We don't know what else was out there and what we missed, only what the authors themselves tell us in indications, right? So, for example, we have two passages at least in the writings of, uh, attributed to Paul that indicate previous letters. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 5.9. This is 1 Corinthians, so theoretically we might, maybe this is a bad assumption to make in, in light of everything I've said. We might think this is the earlier letter. Bad assumption, probably. I, write, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. <clears throat> well, the problem is, is we actually don't have a command from him about this. I mean, this is the chapter where he talks about it. <laughs> So, but he's apparently written something previous on this matter. 
and we may or may not have it. We, we probably don't. Okay? Likewise, in Colossians 4.16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Again, indicating that these letters, this is, they were to be swapped and mixed and matched because apparently the contents were irrelevant. Uh, and Paul doesn't want to write you know, two letters to this church and two letters to that church, so he says, you guys just share with each other. The problem is, we don't know what this letter to the Laodiceans is or what it says. However, if you do a Google search, you'll find a copy but just a head, heads up, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an early, it's an early, late antique forgery, okay? Because this is the way people work. Someone reads the Bible in antiquity, they go, letter of the Laodiceans, ooh, this is my way in. I'm going to write a letter of Laodiceans, I'm going to publish it, I'm going to become famous, <laughs> right? So be, be advised that anytime scripture references a book that we don't otherwise possess, be sure that someone will come up with it sooner or later. And it's usually false. Okay? So <clears throat> one of the questions that I, I, I kind of wonder about is, you know, we, with this knowledge that there are other letters out there, if an archaeologist digging around in Egypt came up with a letter that was attributed to the Apostle Paul, sounded like Paul, and, and, and couldn't, be, you know, couldn't be denied as, as coming from Paul, would we add it to our Bibles or not? Yeah. Okay. You know it. Right. Why wouldn't you accept it? Okay. Would depend upon the content. Okay. That's oh, that's good. How so? Well, if the content disagreed with other things that we already had. Okay. So if it's in symmetry, great. If it's not, like if Paul said, "By the way, I I just want to write some clarification. Jesus was only a human being. He was never divine. I didn't say that." Would we accept that into our canon? Probably not. <laughs> Right, remember what I said about the kerygma. The, you know, the preached message of the church, the tradition of the church, often dictates what we include and what we don't. Right? So there's that. But what if you did authenticate it? What if, you know, what, what if we had some sort of... What if we found this letter next to bones? I mean, just I'm being absurd, of course. Next to bones that you know, bore some sort of marking that said, you know, the Apostle Paul, and we could, we could genetically test the bones, and he's a first century Jew who blew, grew up here, and it's just, just everything down to the detail. Would we accept this letter as authentic? And he says no. Tell me why. Into the canon. Why not? Divisive. This is, you see, hear this? To bring a new book into the Bible at this point would create harm in the body of Christ. By the way, by the way, something for you to know is that when the New Testament canon was being vetted, the main you'll hear a lot of garbage about this by the way. Don't don't believe most of it. Okay. If anyone ever says to you Constantine invented the no, just don't listen to them. At that point you can just shut them down. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay? The way that the church decided what books would be read and wouldn't be read uh, has a lot to do with some of the some of the historical goings-on of the era of the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century, in that time, there were groups of Christians or quasi-Christians who were trying, on, on one side, there were many people who were trying to write more materials, teaching kind of strange theologies, unique ways of looking at things, and they wanted those to be read publicly to advocate for their theological bent. And then there were people on the other side who were saying, we read too much as it is. 
in particular, there's a guy named Marcion who felt that the New Testament, that the, new t- the text that he was reading in his day were too Jewish. We don't like that, he says. So let's cut the Jewishness out, and he ended up with reading a New Testament, no Old Testament, he didn't read Old Testament at all, and the New Testament consider, consisted of a gospel of Luke purged from all Jewish uh, ideas, and then m- most of the letters of Paul, and that's it. Okay? So you have one impulse saying, let's add more. The other saying, let's take away more. Oh, not according to Marcion. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. But even, listen, even in modern Christian discourse, people will say Paul was a Jew as opposed to saying Paul is a Jew. Like, what do we think about that? This isn't a Paul class, so I'm not going to go into it too much further, but suffice it to say, I'm decidedly, personally, of the opinion that Paul never stops being Jewish, and in fact, with maybe some quibbles here and there, minor, maybe not minor things, he even still obeys Jewish law. Okay. So, what, what that means is for another time. So, but the, the point here is, is that the Christian church was faced with this decision, what do we read, what don't we read, and it had impulses pulling it one way or the other, and so their way of approaching it was to say, okay, rule number one, if a book is coming into our canon, it has to agree with what we already know to be true, what we already believe, teach, and practice. If it doesn't, it doesn't get in. Number two, if a book does agree with us and is more or less fine and we can't necessarily sense that there's a theological problem in it, we nevertheless ask a very important question. Which churches read it and how long have they been reading it? And the idea was is that they would do the, greater, the, the lowest common denominator. So if you had, you know, 40 texts, and there are more than 40 texts out there, by the way. If you had 40 texts, let's just say, and only... You know, you know, some of these texts are read by two churches over here, but they've, and they may have been reading them for years and years, but just those two and nobody else, and then just these two over here and nobody else, or lots of these texts have been read, but they've only been around for the last two years. So where did they come from? Okay. What they did was they said, we will choose to incorporate into our canon those, book which, those books which have been read by the greatest majority of churches for the longest period of time. And they knew they knew, you, you better believe they knew, that they very well may be excluding writings that were legitimate and came from the apostles. And they had to be okay with it for the sake of protecting the community. We may be losing good things. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, the, the reality was is that, as exactly as Michael said, this had a lot to do with church unity. If they said... Well, you know, this one church over here, my church says we do read this letter. We read Shepherd of Hermas, for example. That is scripture. If there are 10 churches out in the world that say no, then you're creating a barrier. So what they were trying to do, these early canonical committees and these groups and these, these conversations, they were trying to find the lowest common denominator that all Christians could agree to as a, a shared foundation. And because of that, if we find a new writing, the question is, should we or should we not? I mean, it depends on what our philosophy is. You can feel free to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The truth is the truth, no matter how divisive it is. That's that. You may respond. <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. A friendly interchange is never a bad thing. 
all of those things I said on order that, that we can read it. But incorporated in Christianity leads mm. to our lives now, from here on forward, our lives need to be shaped by this letter as the whole of Scripture, mm. I think, would divide us not only presently, but from the, from the last 2,000 years of I, 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 I'm going to be honest. I think I side with Michael on this one. <laughs> as much as I might get run out with pitchforks. <laughs> yeah, no, because I, I, I hear what he's saying. Because the reality is, is that we have actually come up with documents that are legitimate, not necessarily from the apostles, but we, we have legitimate documents from the first Christian century, second Christian century, that we can look at and say, wow, this is, this is authentic. But in time to come, we haven't, we haven't brought them into the canon. We still read them for edification. The issue is this. What we're challenging here is, what, what we're dealing with is, what is your notion of what a canon is and what it's supposed to do? A canon, if you, if you think of a canon as the limits, of, the limits that we set on everything that's true and false, then I would go with what you're saying. Okay? But that's, I don't, that's not my perception of canon. My perception of canon is what, literally, the canon is what the greatest number of churches have agreed to read and have been reading for the greatest length of time, which would automatically rule out anything that's new. Challenge him after church. <laughs> Did you have a thought? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Daniel. Okay, so aren't we kind of seeing the reverse of that Judaism and the fact that the reform movement they are excluding text and picking and choosing those portions almost on an individual basis. Mm. So we're talking about including. I'm looking at it from the other side. Yeah, what about excluding? excluding? Yeah. And now this was doctrine. This but was orthodoxy. And now we reform it and we exclude. Yeah. Isn't now, it, doesn't it, it, you're saying doesn't reform it, Judaism? Yeah. Or you're t or, or because we could say the same thing about reform, the Christian okay. Reformation. Uh, okay, well, I, I, I was right. thinking of Judaism. But yeah, yeah. So, so because they were so rigid in their doctrine based on their reading, etc., right. their canon. Don't don't you get the same effect if you exclude? Yes, yes, you do. So that's my point. Yes, you do, and absolutely, I think Daniel's absolutely right that you know inclusion or exclusion, either one are there. There, anytime you fiddle with the canon. There are some serious philosophical things going on there. You know, when, and, and people do this even informally. They say, you know, I've had students, and I'll, and I'll be honest, it's a particular kind of student. Usually, when my, if I have a student that is gay or lesbian, um, and, they, and they, they also see themselves as a Christian, then they, I, I, it's not uncommon for them to say, I don't read the letters of Paul, I only read the Gospels. I only read Gospels. I, or I only listen to Jesus, I don't listen to Paul. Well, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's a problem. Um, but the, their hermeneutic there, like the, the way that they're defining the canon is based on what I, what I feel is most friendly to me and doesn't, doesn't challenge me in this way. Okay? And Paul does offer lots of challenges, not just for people who are gays and lesbians, but for people who deal with greed or lust or anger. I mean, there's a thousand different sins that he deals with, right? So, but... Sometimes people make decisions about what they will consider authoritative over their lives, and, and what they're essentially doing is they're creating a personalized canon. Okay? And, and some people have justifications for this that they can argue on a more or less scientific basis. Well, I don't read 
you know, Paul's comments about women not having authority in the church because those come from the pastoral epistles, and as everyone, everyone knows, Paul didn't write those, so pff, I scratch them out. Well, yeah, Paul may not have written them. We don't know. You can raise an argument. You can make an argument that Paul didn't write the pastorals, but they're still canon. If canonicity depends on authorship, then you maybe have an argument, but that's not it. I don't think that's what canon is built on. Canon is built on the Christian church's historical understanding of itself as uh, looking after these particular books. No others, no more, no less. So, these, these, so when someone invokes this, we don't need to listen to such and such anymore, there is a canonical issue at stake. Yeah, if you want to comment, I can tell. <laughs> is there not something to be said, though, about... Um you know, apostolicity that these that the texts are connected with apostles are or those who are very close to the early church movement, those eyewitnesses or the, their students, and perhaps as your as you, your discussion yeah. earlier about Hebrews that, oh well, you know, Jerome pushed and pushed to say, oh yeah, it's it's, it's Paul, but right. translated through the Hebrew, you know, there's a push. I I've experienced in writing that it has to be one of these people because it, it's it's more believable that way. Yeah, that, that, um, I think that's fair. So, so to your point of... The desire of apostolicity, and that, that yeah. sign is definitely significant. Yeah, because without it, then it's, it's not as important, or maybe it right. shouldn't be read. Or, and so for formation of canon, for me, I think that's where I, I, mm, I, yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. Is apostolicity yeah. always the right. truth for it to be incorporated in canon? And I right. just, now, so what Michael is alluding to here is, I think, that's helpful. I should, I should step back and say that when the church was weighing out uh, whether a text should be in the canon or not, the, uh, the apostolicity, that is to say, it's the ability of a person to assign a writing to an apostle, was definitely a factor. And it's almost like if you look, it's like, it's like a certain card. You know, and, and, and whether or not a text was going to be embraced as canonical had to do with how many votes in whichever category it got. Right, Like the book of Hebrews... We're not sure about its apostolicity, but we are sure that it's been read by a great number of churches. We've been seeing that it's been read for a long time. The question of its theology is a little bit opaque because there are some things that Hebrews says that are like, oh, oh, I'm not sure about that. So maybe they withheld that. And maybe it very well was the case that when you had certain documents, especially things like Hebrews and Second Peter, uh, where, where churches were waffling because they didn't have as much accumulated evidence, not as many votes of confidence, that they might have ponied up the card where well, we believe it's from the apostles. And why? We either have evidence or we really love it and we want it in, and so we're going to choose to believe it's apostles, as you said, putting your hand in front and saying, I don't see the evidence. <laughs> I never take the jokers out of my deck. <laughs> I need those guys. <laughs> All right, so anyway, we could spend the entire time just talking about canon, but, you know, and that's a worthy uh, conversation, but we're talking about letters. So let's talk about the technology of letters. <clears throat> In the ancient world, letters could be written on <clears throat> clay, tablets, pottery shirts, papyrus pages, or leather, uh, vellum. I didn't include that there, but it's true. Uh, here we have a, an image of what one would look like written on what's called an ostracon, a broken piece of pottery. Because, hey, when mom goes to, the, when goes to do the cooking and she accidentally knocks her jug off the counter and it shatters in a million pieces, don't ever let a good thing go to waste. Take up the biggest pieces and then use it to write notes to your girlfriend or boyfriend. 
I'm not gender discriminatory about scribal practice. Here we have a Greek letter, very short. Okay, this is not something that's going to end up in a canon some, somewhere. Hey, Judy, how's it going? Meet me at the malt shop or whatever, I don't know. That's not what it says, obviously. Now, most people in the ancient world were not literate to the point that they could effectively compose a letter. So anytime a letter was drafted, the likelihood is that a person was using a personal secretary called an amanuensis. This is somebody who would either take dictation or be tasked with writing up a document, then the, then the person was able to do this. <clears throat> so sometimes letters were written by people uh, other than the people that they're attributed to as a normative process. These letters also would have uh, carriers, and there may have been a, a, an official sort of carrier, like a male person that would just go around and share them, or a very particular individual, maybe somebody close to the recipient or the sender who would carry the letter and then, uh, and then deliver it. Sometimes there were co-senders. We have that in the New Testament as well. Some of Paul's letters are not just Paul's letters. They're Paul and Timothy's letters, or Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus's letters. They're being sent by more than one person. The carrier of a letter, and this is, I think, a fascinating aspect of ancient uh, technology of letters, they were actually tasked with the public reading of this letter, and the reason that the sender or the, the person carrying the letter was given this task is that they were the one to have contact with the sender, and the sender, in addition to giving them the letter, would walk them through its contents and coach them on how to deliver the letter. At this point, I want you to raise your hands. At this point, point to John. Say this, raise your voice here. Bring your voice down here. Inflect it this way. Turn this way. Stage blocking. All of this we hear about in descriptions from the Greco-Roman world in particular about how letters were delivered, but oftentimes those instructions remained completely oral, which means that when we read New Testament letters, we may be just getting what's called a, what we might consider a thin slice across the grain of what is actually there. And how much easier would it be for us to discern you know, okay, when, when Paul says this, or when James says this, what does he mean, and what would it sound like if I were in the audience, and how might that help us interpret? Okay? All sorts of cues and clues that we no longer have access to, uh, and in addition to that, the person would have been coached by the author, we believe, to address any questions that would have come up. So the public letter is read with all of its tones, inflections, and blocking, and then the audience would be able perhaps to say, well, you know, you said this, but what about this? then the person who's responsible for the letter might be, well, you know, he told me you were going to ask that question, and this is what he wants to say. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> That's a thing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Clearly, this is authenticated from Michael, right? Um, so the, the, the missing puzzle for us when we read New Testament letters is that that other element. These were, these were documents read publicly by individuals who were associated with their authors, and they were probably delivered in a very specific way. So what do we do? You know, we're reading at a, at a depth of 2,000 years distance from the actual... So, so we have two considerations here. There's what the letters say when we read them, and then there's what the letters were like when they were performed, because they were also performances. And unfortunately, we don't know. We don't know. It's a, it's a humbling thing to realize that uh, we don't have access. By the way, who wrote the letter to the Romans? We do know. You said Paul. Open up to Romans chapter 16. 
You said Paul? It says Paul, but we don't know. We're reasonably confident that Paul is the one that originated the letter, but I'm, I'm, I'm being cheeky here. Open up to Romans chapter 16. And uh, someone do me a favor and nicely and loudly read Romans chapter 16, verse 22. Titus, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Right. Now, she said Titus. It's actually, if you look at it closely. Oh, Tertius. Tertius. Does anybody know what Tertius means as a name? Sorry. Third. Yeah. Tertiary, right? By the way, this is indicative of who this person is. He's probably a servant or a slave, okay? Because slaves in Roman households were called one, two, three, and four. Primus, Secundus, Tertius, Quartus, Quintus, Sextus, Septimus. Octavian, right? So lesser individuals were often given these names. <clears throat> um, so Tertius is probably some sort of slave or a uh, servant of someone. And he's a member, uh, presumably, of the scribal class. That's why he's writing. And he's a member of Paul's churches. I, Tertius, who write this letter. <laughs> so who wrote Romans? Tertius. <laughs> he actually wrote it down, right? But Paul wrote it, but Tertius also wrote it, right? So Paul himself used an amanuensis. By the way, this may go a long way toward explaining some things that we see in some of other letters of Paul. Open up to the letter of Galatians. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6. And uh, Daniel, since you have a mic very closely, can you, uh, can you, read, can you read Galatians 6.11? I beat him to it, so oh, I'll, I'll jump it. in. Okay. Uh, Six eleven. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Why is he making a point about his own hand writing here? And why does he say, "Look at the large letters I use when I write with my own hand"? Right? He's authenticating. Yeah, by doing what? That's right. Which apparently is indicative of his scribal practice. He writes with big letters. This may be, by the way, who, who, you think about people who write in English. When you think about people who write with very large letters, what do you think? Nearsighted? Maybe myopia? There's another class of people on the opposite end of the spectrum who tend to write with very large letters. Children. Right, big letters. Why? They haven't developed the fine motor skills associated with the scribal arts. If a person is not trained as a scribe, Paul's job was, by the way, a tent maker, when they write, it might look a little bit wonky. Now look at this. This comes up more than once. Open up, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, not 1 Timothy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 17. I'll read it again because I'm here. Okay. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the mark in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Okay. Now open up to Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. There you go. Why does Paul keep doing this? And by the way, in the Second Thessalonians passage, we have a reason why. This is the authenticating mark in all the letters I write. By the way. Why does Paul need to sign his documents? Why do you need to sign any document you sign? 
to authenticate it, to make sure it's you. That's right. So what might this say about Paul's, why does Paul feel the need to help people say, this is really coming from me? That's right. He is concerned about false information getting out. Could it be, and this will be where I part, we, we part ways, could it be possible that there were people in Paul's day who were writing in Paul's name, teaching things he didn't agree with? They were forging letters in his name. And he's trying to counteract it by what he does. All right, we'll come back to this. There are a whole host of other uh, things and background and theoretical issues to deal with with the letters that we'll try to tackle through next time so that we can uh, save enough time to talk through very specific letters. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for your time today, and I'll see you next Sunday. Thanks.